Good morning. Good to see you. Very warm welcome if you're visiting with us today. And uh, hello to those on uh, live stream as well this morning. This morning is week nine in our present series entitled Breakthrough. And um, we're focusing on how to uh, experience greater spiritual breakthrough in our lives. And our subject this morning is the subject of breakthrough in evangelism. Now, evangelism is one of those churchy words which doesn't mean a huge amount of uh, anything, really, to those outside the faith. The word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion. I hope you're impressed. And euangelion means uh, gospel or good news. So evangelism is essentially announcing or proclaiming the good news of Jesus. When I was in primary school, and as you've seen some, from some photos this morning, a very, 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 very long time ago, um, we sometimes the teacher would play with the class a, a game at the end of day, a bit of light relief, and it was uh, word association. You know the game where the teacher just says a word and the class then have got to say the first word that uh, comes to mind. So let's uh, have, have a little try with this. So if, if, if I'm the teacher... And I were to say cup, yeah, that's, that's about it. Boy, girl, yeah. Night, uh, yes, thank you. Um, apple, oh really, I, that, was, that was good going. What about Wales? Scotland, Scotland. Oh, my word, I think you could have done a little bit better than that. Perhaps um, paradise, <laughs> poetry, song, <laughs> rain, rugby. And if anyone tells me the score of Wales against Australia, who are playing this morning in the World Cup, and I recorded it before I come out, all I'm saying is that you will get a free transfer to the Baptist Church. <laughs> Or maybe St. George's up the road, okay? And I'm serious about that. Just saying. Please be kind to me. If I give the word evangelism, I wonder what would be the response. I imagine that some of you will say, well, gospel. Others will say, good news. But I suspect that we might hear some other words as well. Fear. Guilt embarrassment, failure. You see, the idea of uh, reaching out with the good news of Jesus Christ to our nearest and dearest, to our work colleagues, with our fr to our friends, might fill some of us here this morning with a measure of dread, that we fear the kind of response that we might get from them, which might range from ridicule to rejection. Now, most of us uh, here today, I imagine, live between the two extremes. On the one hand, you've got fear, and on the other, you've got um, insensitivity. And as I look back over many years of my Christian journey, I can certainly see both aspects. I can see both the fear and, on times, the insensitivity. Um, there have been times when I have embarrassingly looked over my shoulder to establish who else might be listening in on my God conversation. You see, it's one thing, isn't it, talking to a friend about Jesus, but it's a little bit more uncomfortable 
to have others eavesdropping on that conversation. As a young Christian, I think I was probably in the opposite extreme. I was a little bit of a fundamentalist. And uh, I thought that in my proclamation of the good news of Jesus, a little bit of hellfire and brimstone would be thrown in for good measure. That'll do the trick. Get them smelling the sulfur. Scare them into the kingdom. Yet, sadly, my efforts did more scarring than scaring. And I often hurt my conversation partners. I diminished the gospel, and I also very often embarrassed myself. Now, I think that most Christians would probably say they would love to be in that place in their Christian experience where they could confidently share the message of Jesus with others in a very natural, easy manner to share the message, not because they ought to, but because they want to. To share not out of a sense of a guilt trip, but to share Jesus out of a sense of a full heart. And it's out of the overflow of the heart that their mouths will speak. Not out of duty, but out of a sense of delight. When our first child, David, was born, I was overwhelmed with joy. Oh, Sean's sitting on the front row. Let me just say that when the second child <laughs> was born <laughs> and when the third child was born, I was overwhelmed with joy. But the thing I remember about David was that at the time I was working in local government. And on my way to work, he'd been born just a few hours before. I stopped at um, uh, British Home Stores as was and bought cream cakes for the office. And uh, that morning, people that I only barely knew just nodded to in acknowledgement of one another's presence. I stopped them to have a, uh, a conversation, to engage in discussion about the fact that I had become a dad. Everybody and anyone I would tell about the amazing good news. You know, I didn't need to um, have Julie before I went out that morning saying, now, Steve, I really think that you should tell people in your office that you've become a dad. I, I really think it's, you know, it's something that you should do. I think it's the right thing to do. No, wild horses. Wild horses wouldn't have stopped me doing that. You see, good news is something to share with others. And if you find an oasis in a desert, you will want to share the blessing with your thirsty friends. If you discover a cure for some incurable disease, then you will want to pass that on to others. It was uh, famous Baptist uh, preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, preacher at the end of the 19th century. He once said that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Good news is something that we share with others. In John chapter 1, we read of Andrew. And it says there that the first thing that Andrew did, Andrew actually became a follower of Jesus. And it says the first thing that he did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. He just couldn't help himself, couldn't help himself at all. Good news is for sharing. And this morning, I'm going to be speaking about breaking through in evangelism, and I'm going to focus on three components. They're all beginning with P, so you can remember them easily. Prayer. Presence and proclamation. First of all, we need to be people of prayer, praying for those that we are reaching out to. Secondly, we must never isolate ourselves in some kind of holy huddle, but we need to live our lives amongst others. 
And as we live our lives rubbing shoulders with others, we need to live genuine, authentic, kind, compassionate, attractive Christian lives. And we need also to tell them the good news of Jesus. Peter writes this in his letter. He writes in 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning on those three points. First of all, prayer. Prayer is absolutely foundational to mission and to evangelism. Jesus taught his disciples to abide in him or to remain in him, which is essentially what prayer is all about. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the true vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And then just notice the words that come after that. Apart from me, you can do a few things. No? You can do absolutely nothing. Now, forgive me, I'm sure you've heard this story before. It's a bit of an overused story, if, I, if the truth be known. But it's a, a story that nevertheless illustrates the point that I'm coming to this morning. It's a story of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary. He was the guy who founded the China Inland Mission and a great, incredible man of God. And he told the story once of um, a missionary couple in charge of 10 mission stations. And they felt it necessary to write home to their missions um, director, their missions um, secretary, confessing that they hadn't made a huge amount of progress out on the missions field. And suggestions were made by the secretary to find 10 people, each of whom could take one mission station as a special object of prayer. And as time passed, seven of the 10 mission stations, uh, much of the opposition melted away. People started coming to experience Jesus. There was a spiritual revival that went on. Significant numbers came to Christ, but not in the other three. So the missionary wrote a second time to the mission secretary, expressing a, a bewilderment over lack of growth in the other three. And it didn't take the secretary very long to discover what had happened. He managed to five se find seven people, and only seven people, to act as intercessors for the mission stations. Now, you might say that's a coincidence. Well, I'll leave you to make up your mind on that. Samuel Chadwick, a Christian leader from another generation, said this. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. A little bit more tongue-in-cheek. Uh, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, Canterbury, William Temple, once said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. You see, I believe that one of the greatest faults in Western Christianity is the sin of self-sufficiency. We can do it. We can do it on our own, so we think. But prayer brings us back into that place and reminds us that we cannot do it on our own, that we are not... Um, independent of God, that we are totally dependent upon him. Some of you might have read uh, a, a book. I know that uh, as I visit uh, some of your homes that uh, some of you have this book on your bookshelves. It's a book that we recommended oh, a long time ago now 
by a man called Ron Dunn, and it's entitled, Don't Just Stand There, Praise Something. And Ron writes these words. He says, the church has always been slow to understand the tactics needed for spiritual warfare. We wade into battle armed with beautiful sanctuaries and choreographed programs and high-powered publicity. These things are good, but alone they are useless in spiritual warfare. Now, I know that some Christians and some uh, churches that I've known have really gone over the top when they speak about all things spiritual warfare. They give the devil, I believe, far too much credit. Some Christians talk about the devil more than they talk about Jesus. But the other extreme to that is where Christians do not acknowledge that there is a spiritual battle which is going on. It's a battle for people's souls, and they seem utterly oblivious to it. Let me tell you what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. And Paul there is telling us the reason that people cannot understand or accept the message of Christ is not that they're being awkward, it's not that they're being difficult, it's not that they're being deliberately closed-minded, but it's that they can't necessarily help themselves. In some respects, it isn't their fault. Paul was so aware of this spiritual battle which is going on in the heavenlies. When he writes to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 6, he writes these words. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. A number of years ago, a man by the name of uh, Dr. Alan Redpath, he was um, a well-known Christian, um, made a significant difference to the cause of Christ throughout the world. He was the pastor of the Chicago Moody um, Church there, and um, he suffered a stroke. And when he was convalescing, he said, I believe that the Lord has taught me a great lesson. Never undertake more Christian work than, be, than can be covered by believing prayer. When I read that many years ago, actually, that challenged me, it challenged me then, it challenges me now. I'm sure that we, as we hear that, uh, th that quote, never undertake more Christian work than can be covered by believing prayer. It's a challenge to me individually. I'm sure it's a challenge to us as a church, to the various ministries and projects that we run as a church. And uh, do we do that? Do we undertake more work than we can cover in prayer? Do you know what? If I'm being totally honest with you, I think that we do on times, that we're very active in the community. But we need to cover all that we do in believing prayer. I said there were three P's. Presence. Missionaries and aid workers very often talk dismissively about high-profile visitors to some famine or some troubled spot. Surrounded by security men and their camera crews, they often talk to selected victims, make the appropriate noises of sympathy or outrage, and then they retreat by helicopter 
or air-conditioned four-wheel drive vehicle to the nearest five-star hotel. That wasn't the way of Jesus, was it? That wasn't the way of Jesus. For Jesus, it was no hit-and-run operation, arriving for a night, holding a rally, then hurrying off the next morning. But Jesus came to where we are. He sat where we sit. He took time to build relationships and friendships of trust of those around him. There's a great story in um, uh, Luke chapter 5. It's the story of Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew was also known by another name, which was Levi. Well done, who have said that. This, uh, this guy had uh, two names, and you often find that in the scriptures. You know, there was Simon, who then became known as Cephas, Peter, and, and there are others as well. But Levi Matthew was uh, a tax collector. And let's just uh, read some words about him in Luke 5, 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to the Aes sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi was a tax collector who decided to follow Jesus. And in that time, in that day, being a tax collector was just one notch above uh, being a member of the mafia. Uh, tax collectors were notorious for pilfering uh, money from the poor. They were seen as traitors. They were seen as collaborators with the Romans. They nearly always lined their own pockets with extra money that they were collecting from, from the poor. But when Levi followed Jesus, he had an immediate concern for his friends, for his fellow tax collectors who had not yet met Jesus. And his natural desire was to reach out to them and for them to find out what he had ex experienced for himself. But how was he to do that? He'd never been to an evangelism seminar. He didn't have a theology degree. He didn't have any printed materials. All he had was a heart which was filled with compassion for those around him. I wonder what strategies uh, he ran through his mind. I wonder if he said to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll bring my tax-collecting colleagues into the temple to listen to some great rabbi reading out the Old Testament law in Hebrew. That should get them. I doubt it. I don't think his card-carrying pagans will appreciate that offer. So what he decided to do was to throw a party. Throw a party, of course, what better idea. His tax-collecting buddies loved parties. The bigger, the better. And then he said to himself, I will invite Jesus and his disciples. And maybe Jesus in that environment can get through to them in the way that he got through to me. And on the night of the event, heaven knows what strategic conversations took place. In that reading, which I've just put up on screen, that story of Levi, Matthew, 
doing this, there's only six verses in Luke's gospel. So we don't have too many of the details. But the one thing that we do know is that the religious Pharisees got wind of what he was doing and they didn't like it. They apparently thought that Jesus was doing evangelism in the wrong way. They said that he shouldn't be socializing with these people who were tax collectors and people they regarded as sinners. Now just for a moment, put yourself in Levi's shoes. Listening to what was going on, listening to this conversation that was being had. When the Pharisees were giving his guest of honor, Jesus, some grief for meeting the people that they regarded as sinners. Levi was probably thinking, oh no, I've really blown it now. Why on earth did I think of that? Why on earth did I bring Jesus into this crowd? Jesus is going to be annoyed at me. He doesn't need this kind of grief from those, those religious guys. But then Levi heard Jesus defending his actions, Levi's actions. Jesus reminded the Pharisees that the sick ones are those who need a doctor. What good is it if doctors spend all their time hanging around with healthy people? That's no good at all. And although the Bible doesn't tell us what happened next, I can imagine Jesus, after answering the Pharisees, I can imagine him putting his arm around Levi's shoulder and saying, well done, Levi. I just love your heart. I love what you're about. I love that idea that you had in reaching out to your, your friends so that they could meet with me. I just want you to know, Levi, I'm really honored to be a part of your plan to reach them. Now let's get back to the party. You see, a party with a purpose. And Levi was creatively thinking of ways to introduce irreligious people to Jesus. And sometimes I think that we as Tamworthelian Church, that we also need on occasions to be a little bit more creative than what we are on times. Often we can think of mission in terms of church services, which for many people are impenetrable. Don't get me wrong, you know, I think it's wonderful that we meet together. I think, you know, coming together as a, a, a church family for celebration on a Sunday morning to sing our worship songs, to meet with others, to come and open God's word together. It's a wonderful privilege. But you see, much of what we do and the way that we do it and the language that we use could be another language for your ordinary guy or girl on the street in our country. That's why Alpha is so important. We advertise it this morning. Alpha, in a sense, brings this message of Jesus down to a way that just ordinary people can truly understand. You see, we need to start where people are at, to sit where they sit, to live our lives authentically before others. When I first became a Christian, um, there were some older Christians than myself um, who encouraged me to isolate myself from those who were unbelievers. And I was told to mix socially only with Christians and go to lots of Bible studies, never into a pub. And then these people that, <laughs> it's crazy looking back upon it. These people who had that particular view would then say such things, they would come out with their scripture verses uh, like the one that says, come out from among them, 
and be ye separate. And they always seem to quote the King James Version of the Bible. I don't know why, whether it was because it sounded more authentic or if they believed that God spoke in medieval English, I don't know. But, you know, uh, to give it a sense of more authority that they were quoting from the Scriptures. Another favorite of some of these people was a, a verse taken from James. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. And you see, these folk really believed that they were being helpful and biblical. Actually, they were being neither. They weren't being helpful and they weren't being biblical. They simply misunderstood Jesus' heart. And I thank God that Jesus did not stand aloof, did not stand detached. He came to breathe our air, to walk our paths, to eat our food, and to drink from our cups. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, the Word who became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we are challenged to really follow His example. As He came to us, we in His name are to go to others, to live alongside them, to sit where they sit, to reach out with compassion and to show mercy. You see, God does not call us into some holy huddle. He doesn't call us to live as hermits. Rather, we have been called to be salt and light, bringing his flavor into very often bland lives of those that live without Christ. And as a church many years ago, we made a conscious decision to reach out into our community in a range of ways and to share with them the love of Christ. And in doing so, we wanted to be followers of the example of Jesus. Thirdly, proclamation. Some people say that there are two things that you should never talk about. What are they? <laughs> Politics and religion, absolutely. I wonder if that was before the 2016 referendum for Brexit, <laughs> because it's a, a conversation that seems to be on everybody's tongues these days. But many people hold that view. You know, two things you don't speak about, politics and religion. Uh, for example, when you vote, it's a private ballot. You go to a cubicle, you put an X by the name of the person that you're going to vote to. You, you fold the paper, you put it in a box, and you don't need to tell anybody which way you voted. But similarly, many people believe that religion is something which is simply off the table. It's something that you don't talk about. It's just between you and God. Other people don't need to know. If you have a faith, it's personal, it's private. Keep it to yourself. Do you remember some years ago, former um, Prime Minister Tony Blair? He was asked a question about his personal beliefs in an interview. And his then Director uh, of Strategy and Communications, Alistair Campbell, quickly intervened to prevent Tony Blair, Prime Minister, answering this question about his faith with infamously stating, we don't do God. Do you remember that? We don't do God. And that might be the wisdom of this world, but it is not God's wisdom. Because Jesus, our Lord, instructed his disciples, instructed us, by way of what we call often the great commission to go and to tell others about him and the world might say we don't do God we say we do God 
And we say that when we go out and speak to others, we do it because we're being obedient to Jesus. And if we choose not to do it because of the pressure of the world around us, we're actually being disobedient to Jesus. These words are known to all of you, I'm sure. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The word go is found in the Bible 1,514 times. Go and tell. Go and invite. Go and make disciples. Go and tell the good news about me. You see, proclamation is a stage further than just getting alongside people and living authentic lives. You see, being nice to people isn't quite enough. It's a good start. It's better than not being nice. Don't get me wrong. But people need to know the reason for the hope that we have. Jesus' plan to reach the world was through his followers passing on the message to others. There's no plan B. I'm glad they obeyed. Aren't you? They passed the message on to others who passed it on to others who passed it on to others, who passed it on to others, who passed it on to others, and two millennia later, there were others who passed it on to you and on to me. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? And that is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. Those words up on screen, you probably know them quite well, but let's for a moment personalize them. How could we have ever called on the name of Jesus and be saved? if we had not known his name? And how could we have heard his name if no one had loved us and cared for us enough to tell us? You see, I thank God for those who lovingly and carefully and faithfully explained to us the good news about Jesus. And for some of you here today, it might have been Christian parents or grandparents may have been a great Sunday school teacher or a youth worker, might have been a friend, a, a work colleague, the guy down at the gym, the swimming instructor, the next door neighbor, whoever. But just to say thank you, thank you God, for that person's obedience and faithfulness in sharing with me the message of Jesus. You see, we have received such blessing and the responsibility and the privilege that we have is to share what we have received with others. It's good news. You know, sometimes we, you know, the way the Christians act, it, it, it sounds as if it's bad news. Better not share that. Oh, my word, they, they'll take it badly. It's good news. But what is our message? What is this good news? And it's so important to get this right because 
um, Paul writes there in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The Greek word there, the written in Greek, is the word dynamis, from which we get the English word dynamite. So he's saying essentially that the gospel, the good news, is like dynamite. It has a power in itself. It's a power to transform people's lives. It has a power to turn sinners into saints. To the church at Corinth, Paul writes something very, very similar to that in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, where he says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what is that message that has the power to save lives? I've noticed sometimes that uh, people wear a little bracelet or sometimes a, a t-shirt. Have you seen those around? Yeah, a few of you. Four items there. There's a, there's a heart. There's an X-shaped cross. Then there's the, the Christian symbol of a cross. And then a question mark, a simple reminder of four aspects of the good news message that we have been given to proclaim. The heart, which stands for God's love. God loves us all. The X, I used to get a lot of those in schools. And it wasn't because my teacher loved me. It was the X, we've all sinned. Thirdly, that Jesus died for each one of us. And fourthly, we need to make a personal decision to follow Jesus. Just sit back for a moment. I want to play a short video for you from the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Some time ago, I was being interviewed. It sort of happens in this job. And the interviewer made it very, very clear that she did not believe in God. And certainly, if there was a God, Jesus was nothing to do with God. And she picked up on a phrase used by someone else famously a few years ago in England who said, we don't do God. And she said, I don't do God. And I said, yes, but God does you. The point about becoming a Christian is not that we grit our teeth, screw up all our good intentions and live better lives while saying some prayers that we don't really understand to someone we've never really met for the rest of our life in the hope that it'll pay off afterwards. That's a sort of caricature of what it is. To become a Christian is to allow the fact that God is reaching out to us to be realized by us stretching out our hand and saying, yes, I want to follow you, to belong to you, to be your disciple. Yes, I've gone wrong. Yes, I'm a bit of a mess in the dark nights. I know that. I've made lots of wrong choices. I may be in the middle of some, but Lord, save me. And the extraordinary thing is, wherever we're coming from, however bad we are, however good we are, whatever we're like, we find his hand slipping into ours and he begins to lead us on a lifetime journey that goes on beyond life forever in his presence, a journey of perfect love. 
He's not bad, is he? He's all right. <laughs> I just want to finish, really, what I've been saying this morning by encouraging you that God uses the great super-evangelists of our world and God uses very ordinary people. The leader of the Twelve, Peter, was someone that was used by Jesus and uh, he was someone larger than life, a leader, an evangelist. But God also used his brother, Andrew, the one who, in the first instance, brought him to Jesus. And you see, we are God's plan we're it. We're it. To reach out to friends and family and community and to Tamworth with the greatest and most wonderful news this world has ever known. And if we don't do it, how will they know? So I want to encourage you today. Firstly, I want to encourage you to start praying. Truly believing God for that loved one, that friend, that they truly might come to know Jesus as you know Jesus. Do we love them enough to pray for them? Secondly, to make sure that as we reach out that we live authentic, attractive Christian lives, make sure that your actions and your reactions match your words. And thirdly, be bold enough and loving enough to share your story, your personal story, your testimony, but also his story, the message of the good news. What's the worst that can happen? They can call you a religious nutcase, never speak to you again. On the other hand, on the other hand, they might engage with you and come to trust Jesus too and have their lives changed and the course of their future and their family, their children, their grandchildren, other people that know them, and to have that impact upon their lives. Dear Lord, we just ask you today that you will enable us to see others as you see them. Lord, you came and you gave your life for this world, for me, for us, for all people, for the world, Lord. And I just pray that we might look upon others with the love that you look upon them too, that we might see them as those that you have died for, Lord. And I pray too, Lord, that you might give us boldness and courage to go out and share the message, even when we might fear rejection. And give us the wisdom too, Lord. We don't want to be insensitive. We don't want to uh, follow that caricature of Christians very often out in the world where we, they are seen as Bible-bashing or God-bothering. Or, Lord, I just pray that we would be sensitive to your spirit and loving in all that we do. I just pray, Lord, for those in this gathering this morning those who have heavy hearts of friends and family and loved ones who are not following you. I just pray, Lord, that you will give my friends here the, faith, the, the gift of faith that they might truly believe that you can and will work 
through their witness and through their lives to touch the lives of others. Dear Lord, we thank you that no one, no one, no one, no one is beyond the grace of God. We give you thanks and praise for that wonderful truth. Amen.